wanted to talk to you today about a subject that I think is very important to us all as men. In fact, I know it is. It's godliness. And specifically, I wanted to use uh, a book written by a Puritan many, many years ago, The Godly Man's Picture. But before we, uh, uh, we turn to uh, what that Puritan had to say so long ago, I wanted to go to the Word of God, which should be our, our, our first and, and our frequent meditation. Second uh, Peter 1, specifically. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 8. And I'm not really going to exegete Peter's words here, uh, but what I want you to see is his emphasis on godliness. His emphasis not simply on salvation, but his emphasis on everything that flows from salvation and follows after salvation, and his exhortations to his brothers in Christ to be growing in grace, to be growing in godliness. But before we read the word of God, let's seek his face. Let's ask for his blessing. God, our gracious Father, I pray now, Lord, that you would be with me. Help my poor, lisping, stammering tongue to say something that is worthy of Christ. I pray, O Lord, that you would this day wake us up from our slumbers. Help us to understand your word better uh, and to be concerned about our growth in godliness, our growth in grace. Help us as men to be setting that example that is so badly needed in this age. And help us, O Lord, to be guiding those who have not yet come to the light to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And amen. Second Peter and chapter 1. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Simeon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that though, uh, through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Gentlemen, you may not realize this, but you are a rare commodity. Now, what do I mean you're a rare commodity? Well, I I say that because I'm assuming, and I hope I'm not incorrect in this, I'm assuming that you are church-going men, that this is not the first time that you've been in this uh, sanctuary or a sanctuary recently, that on a week-to-week basis you attend a church. Living here in the South, though, you may not be aware of this, or as aware as I am, having grown up in the, uh, in the, the wilds of the pagan north up in uh, New Jersey, but most American men, whether or not they identify as Christian, they do not attend church on a weekly basis. And to give you an idea of exactly how many men do not attend church on a weekly basis, uh, David Murrow, in his book, why men hate going to church, and I need to apologize, I love statistics. He, he brings out some statistics, though, that are very sobering. He says this, just 
of the men in the USA attend church weekly, just 35%. Women comprise over 60% of the typical adult congregation on any given Sunday. At least one-fifth of married women regularly worship without their husbands. Think about that. Every one in five married women is worshiping without her husband. And the majority of men attend worship services and nothing more. No Sunday school, no other groups, nothing like that. And in fact, it's so bad that men in the 18 to 29 age range are the least likely demographic to be in church on a Sunday. So what's going on? Why is it that, that men, I mean, we read through the, uh, the New Testament, and one of the things that leaks out, leaps out at us is the spiritual headship. I mean, yeah, absolutely. There are women who are uh, actively involved in the church in the New Testament, names like uh, Priscilla uh, and Dorcas come to us, but uh, you see again and again that it's the men who are taking the leading role, and yet we seem to have reversed that within our own church. So why are men in particular dropping out of church? Why is that happening? Well, Murrow in his book says the culprit is the feminization of the church. He says that evangelicals have made the experience of going to church as inappropriate for men as wearing a pink sweater. That's his analogy. And there is some truth to that. But I'd say that the feminization of the church, brothers, is more of a symptom than a cause and that the real problem is deeper. Now, I'm going to share with you this evening my private opinion. My private opinion for why so few men are in the church today is that in the evangelical world generally, and especially amongst men, if we concentrate on anything theological, and I've found that we are, we are concentrating less and less on anything theological, anything doctrinal, but if we do concentrate in our church on something theological, it's going to be salvation. Our emphasis is going to be on getting people saved. Our emphasis in our preaching is going to be on being born again, asking Jesus into your heart. And that's going to be what we concentrate on. This, this week, we're going to talk about, about being saved. We're going to, at the end of it, have an altar call and invite you to ask Jesus into your heart. And then next week, we'll be asking Jesus into our heart again, and so on every single week. Now, I want to say this, it is very important. In fact, it's vitally necessary that we preach about the importance of being born again. Far too many churches in the United States aren't even doing that anymore, and all that people are hearing is just fluff every Sunday. But being born again isn't the end. Being born again is the beginning. When someone is born again, that is the beginning of their spiritual life. Just as when you are born, that's the beginning of your physical life. And so we don't expect somebody, after they're born again, to remain a baby. We expect them to grow. We expect them to mature. In fact, if we remain babes in Christ, something is wrong. Now, the apostles do deal with that. For instance, in Hebrews and in 1 Corinthians 3, they, they say, you know, you should have moved on. You should have moved to meat. You're still drinking milk. This is wrong. But they saw that as a, a problem to be fixed. Now, in biblical Christianity, therefore... When someone is justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, there is this expectation that after that, they will, they will begin to grow, to mature. The process is generally called sanctification, becoming holy. And we're expected to do those good works after we're saved, those good works that we were saved for. We're supposed to be becoming less and less like Adam 
and more and more like Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be dying to sin and growing in righteousness. Peter put it beautifully in this passage. He said, we are now that we have become partakers of the divine nature through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are to grow in that nature, to grow in our likeness to Christ. That's whose likeness we're being conformed to, right? We're supposed to be more and more like him. Now, I want to acknowledge that from start to finish, it's God's divine power that is doing all of these changes within us from beginning to end. He is not only the cause of our justification, he is the agent of our sanctification as well. If we're going to grow in grace, if we're going to become more godly, if we're going to become more like Christ, it's the Holy Spirit that's going to be doing it. But note that Peter tells us that we're to be attending to these things with all diligence. We're going to be working out our salvation. We're going to be constantly running the race, all of those exhortations to strenuous activity in the faith that we see the apostles giving us, tell us that we have a role to play in our sanctification. We don't sanctify ourselves, and yet it is our, it is our job to be diligent in attending, for instance, on the means of grace that God uses to sanctify us. Now, that emphasis that I just made, that's what I find missing in America's churches today, that emphasis on sanctification. I find that men are receiving no discipleship, no instruction as to how to grow in grace, how to become more like Christ. And so they find themselves making little or no progress in the Christian faith. And unfortunately, they find themselves as a result falling prey to the same old sins time and again. And in the end, they end up looking very much like the world. When Barna does those awful surveys of Christian men and he contrasts them with the world on many different subjects, we look just like the world. We're not growing apart from them. We're not coming out of the world. We are still conformed to it. And all they're being instructed on in sun, on Sunday is how to be born again. So what does that mean? Well, the answer often that they're given to their besetting sins, the sins that every Christian struggles with, is to go back to the beginning. Have you got a sin? Go back to the beginning. You need to be born again, brother. I can't tell you how many times I've spoken with Christian men and Christian boys, and they've told me how many times they've walked the aisle, how many times they have thought they've either been born again again, or they have rededicated their lives to Christ. And what they're hoping is that this time it'll finally stick. This time, it'll finally take, and they'll be free from all of those sins that are tripping them up. But I, I want to encourage you, brothers, you can search the scriptures all you want, but you will not find that back to the, to the cradle methodology anywhere in scripture. That is not the way. The biblical answer to our sin problem and the struggles that every Christian, even Paul, read Romans 7 if you don't believe me, but even Paul had with sin, the answer to our problem is sanctification generally and godliness specifically so that we might more and more die to sin and live for righteousness. Now, the author outside of the Bible who helped me more than anybody else to understand that process of sanctification was this fellow Thomas Watson. Hands up if you've heard of Thomas Watson. Okay, a few guys. He was a contemporary of uh, John Owen, of John Bunyan. 
uh, from the 17th century, a, a, a Puritan minister, a man who was so devoted to the Lord that he gave up his ministry, was ejected with about 2,000 of the other godly Christian ministers in England when the Restoration came. They wanted them to agree to things that were just not biblical, and he refused to do it, so he lost his ministry. But he devoted himself throughout his life to compiling his sermons together into these incredibly important and helpful books. And one of them is this book, The Godly Man's Picture. I would encourage you to pick it up. It helped me to understand what it means to be a godly man. Not that I'm there yet. When I address you on the subject of godliness, please understand I'm simply a pilgrim on the walk myself. And I'm just encouraging men to come along in that sense. Now, what I would like to do is stand here and read this book to you in full. I think that would be the most edifying thing to do. But it's 250 pages long, and we just ate this enormous steak, and uh, let's face it, most of us have to work tomorrow, so it's just not going to be possible to do that. So, um, instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to briefly touch on some of his points. What I'm essentially just going to do is skip the rock over the pond. And I hope that will encourage you to pick up this book and to read it devotionally. And I'd encourage you even to read it devotionally with your sons, brothers. It's the godly man's picture. And I'll get to this in a little while, but isn't that our desire? We want our children to be the picture of a godly man when they grow up? I do. I know. Well, before we start discussing what's in the book, let's, let's talk about this word godliness. We, we say often he's a godly man, or sometimes we say he's a godly man. Or we talk about godliness, and we all want godliness, but what is godliness anyway? I want to give you perhaps a few definitions that encompass different aspects of it. Watson wrote this. He said, what a rare thing godliness is. It is not airy and puffed up, but solid, and such as will take up the heart and spirit's Godliness consists in an exact harmony between holy principles and practices. And here we have an important preliminary principle. A godly man isn't just someone who holds to right doctrine and right practice. And I don't know how it is in, in Baptist circles, but often you'll get the, the new Reformed convert in, um, in Presbyterian circles, and he's just raring to go. They sometimes call him the in the cage stage. But all of his, all of his time is devoted to, to the theory and, and arguments about theological minutia and so on. But so little of the doctrine that he's learning and arguing about ad infinitum on the internet, so little of that is actually being put into practice. So that you ask, well, how's your family worship? How are your family devotions? How are your private devotions? How's your prayer life? You ask these questions, and it's just not there. Well, but, uh, rather, Watson, sorry, now I'm stuck on Bunyan. Uh, Watson says, no, godliness is not merely knowing the theory. Godliness is when the theory and the practice are together in your life. And we'll talk more about that in a little while. He says... Uh, to quote Second Peter 1.8, the godly man is neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The practical knowledge is working out in his life. Here's another definition of godliness from Watson. Godliness is the sacred impression and workmanship of God in a man, whereby from being carnal, he is made spiritual. When godliness is wrought in a person, he does not receive a new soul, but he has another spirit. The faculties are not new, but the qualities are. The strings are the same, but the tune is corrected. What that is emphasizing is the fact that godliness is the work of God in us, and it's a process of tuning, 
God takes this out-of-tune violin and he begins the process of tuning it and bringing it to the standard of the perfect Stradivarius that is his son. So the first time you pass the bow over this new violin, it makes this awful racket. Not, not really glorifying to God, but he begins to adjust it. He begins to tweak it, to turn it. And gradually it sounds sweeter and sweeter and more like the original that he's trying to copy. It's never going to produce the same perfect Stradivarius notes that our Lord and Savior Jesus did. But it's closer to that model. And if you're still having difficulty, let me give you one final definition. Godliness is to imitate God in a love for what is just and true. Godliness is the imitation of God, but not as an act, not as something that we're playing out, but rather we do it because we love God, the source of our godliness. Well, let me give you now moving from having hopefully defined godliness. Let's talk, to some, uh, talk about some of the characteristics of a godly man. The general characteristics of godliness in a Christian man, we could take, we could take hours. We, I've already said we don't have hours to do that. But what qualities make a Christian man a godly man? What do we say? When we see a man and we say he is godly, what are we referring to? Well, I want to point to three particular qualities. I'm not going to be able to discuss, I think Watson has something like 12 different qualities that he discusses in detail, and they're all very important. I just want to go over what seemed to me to be some of the most important ones, three of the most important ones specifically, and then try to apply them first. And, I, and in doing this, I'm kind of thinking about Christianity and Christian men in our own age, and where are deficiencies? Where do we really need to, to so to speak, pick up the game? Uh, the first is a godly man is a man of knowledge. A godly man has what Peter calls the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And not just, a, you know, his own preconceived notions. He has a true knowledge of God. It's grounded where? It's grounded in the study of the Bible and the hearing of the word. And I don't mean just occasionally flipping over from the Bible once in a while or occasionally attending on church. I mean constantly. He values that knowledge. When we value something, we, we want it, and we want more of it as a general rule. He, he's hungry for it. Watson says this, So sweet is spiritual knowledge that the more a saint knows, the more thirsty he is for knowledge. It's a funny thing. The knowledge of God is like a banquet, but the more you eat, the more you hunger, the more you want it's not like the steak we just ate, <laughs> where I stopped uh, eating about 10 minutes after I was full. But brothers and sisters, you cannot be too full of the word of God. There's always room for more. It's also not a knowledge that the godly man is storing up for his own sake. It's a practical knowledge that he applies every single day. And he doesn't seek out this knowledge of God out of a sense of duty. Okay, I got to read my Bible. I know, tick box, you know. Why does he read the Bible? Because he loves it. Why does he love the Bible? Well, it's not that he just loves it as literature. And I admit there are parts of the Bible that I like more than other parts of the Bible. But why does he like the Bible? He loves the author of the Bible. He loves the source. Now, some of the younger kids aren't going to get this. I can't help that. But those of you who have been in love, and I hope if you're married, you've been in love. 
If you've been in love, you know when you were in love how much you longed for that phone call. Or you longed, if you were in love more recently, for an email. Or even a word from your beloved. And you thought constantly on, on her words. Did she mean to say I was too fat? Was that what she was trying to say? Or things like that. You know, you were constantly thinking about what she had said. And you couldn't wait to hear from them again. Well, the godly man is like that with the word of God. The godly man can say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day. And that knowledge doesn't just bounce off of him. It gets under his skin and it transforms him. It changes him. It becomes part of him, part of his very essence. I don't know if you've been around a man who's, who's been godly for many, many years, but one of the things, and he doesn't really even, he doesn't realize it, but he just, he exudes Bible. His speech is informed by the word of God. Spurgeon said this of the godly man, prick him anywhere, his blood is bibbling. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. That's the kind of knowledge that the godly man has. Now, if I can apply that, we are passing through a time that concerns me very, very greatly in terms of the church. I mean, the world, it's... I read the news and it's like the, the plot of some sort of terrible dystopian novel. You always, I, I hope it's a joke whenever I read a news story these days. And it's not. But what concerns me more than that, I expect the world to be the world. But what concerns me more than that is the way things are going in the church. Because it seems to me that there's a dearth of the knowledge of the word in the Christian world generally and especially brothers amongst Christian men. One of the things that concerns me is whenever I hear of a new inductive Bible study or something like that, it's always for women. Have you noticed that? Who's meeting for Bible study fellowship and things like that on a regular? Women. Christian men. Yeah. Bible. My, oh, yeah, my wife. My wife studies the Bible. Brothers, we need to be reading the Bible. If we're going to love it, we need to be reading it. And Christians, by and large, do not read the Bible. And they don't even read other fine books of theology. And unfortunately, it shows. I heard that our denominational seminary, that is my denomination seminary, the PCA, that's Covenant Theological Seminary. I heard that in the 70s and the 80s, two-thirds of the incoming class, these are guys who are coming to be trained to be pastors, two-thirds of the incoming class passed the basic English Bible exam. Two-thirds of them had a good grounding in the Bible. Now, 2013, two-thirds fail the exam. And the exam has been progressively simplified through the ages because it was getting really embarrassing at how many people were beginning to fail. And I believe that. I've taught pastors at a Bible college for several years. And you would ask, okay, so uh, we're going to be discussing the moral law and uh, the Ten Commandments today. So somebody tell me the first commandment. Chirp, chirp, chirp. Come on, guys. You shall have no other gods before me. My son is raising his hand. Thank you, Grammy. But they couldn't tell you where the Ten Commandments were. They couldn't tell you about doctrines as basic as justification. And these are not ordinary members. These are pastors. These are the teachers of the church. Now, brothers, nothing will substitute for the knowledge of God's word. And here I want to address husbands and fathers and future husbands and fathers. If you don't know the word, how 
will you guide and teach your wives and children? How? What are you going to give them that's really worth knowing? If you want to be able to pass on that knowledge, you have to have it yourself. And so therefore, I, I urge you, if you haven't already done this, get a Bible reading program. And begin to systematically go through the word of God. Get the word into you. Let it transform you until you too become a man who bleeds biblically. So that's the first part of being a godly man. He has a knowledge of God. And it comes from his word. Secondly, a godly man is a man of prayer. Now just as the godly man loves to, he- to, to hear from God in his word. And that's what the word of God is to us. So too, he longs to speak to God. He doesn't want it to be a monologue. He wants it to be a divine dialogue. So he opens his day with prayer. And then he, throughout the day, he constantly is going to God in prayer. And I don't mean he spends the entire day on his knees, although that wouldn't hurt some of us (laughs) to spend a day set aside in prayer and fasting like they did once But I mean, he spends the whole day sending up arrow prayers constantly. Whenever there's a conflict, a question, a decision, something that needs to happen, he doesn't just launch himself into it first. He goes before the Lord and he asks for what he has need of. When he hears somebody who has a problem, he doesn't merely let it go. He says, let me pray for you, brother. Let me pray for you, sister. He intercedes for the people around him on a regular uh, basis. And he's just constantly praying. Now, one of the great blessings about the age of Bluetooth is you can drive in your car now and be going like this and the people next to you don't think they're, you're crazy. They think you're just talking on the phone. But you can be talking to God wherever you're driving. Let me urge you once in a while, turn off the radio. You can hear from Rush later. Go to God. Speak to him. Seize those moments, those times. And Pray wherever you are. Do not be ashamed. The godly man is not ashamed to ask God's blessing over his food at a restaurant, over his food at work, over his food at school. The godly man speaks to God also, not just constantly, but from the heart. That's where his communication is coming from. He doesn't just know about God. The godly man knows God. And he knows him as a friend. He knows him as a friend through Christ. He goes to God first for counsel rather than his friends. He begins anything, anything important with prayer rather than, okay, after everything has fallen apart, now God, please clean up this mess I've just made in my life. But rather, before he starts, he goes to God. And he prays believing prayers, knowing that God will answer them, and not necessarily by giving him what he wanted in the first place. As Spurgeon puts it, the godly man knows God will give the good which he did not ask, and withhold the ill which he so wisely, unwisely rather, requested. And he's content with that. God, give me what I need should be our prayer more often than God, give me what I want. And the godly man perseveres in prayer. He's not just somebody who is a one-and-done prayer. He goes before God all the time. Now, what does persevering prayer look like? Let me give you an example, because we don't see persevering prayer, I don't think, very often, or have an idea of what it really consists of. William Still, 
was the pastor of a church called Gilcomston South in Aberdeen in Scotland. He pastored there from 1945 to 1997. And every Saturday, they would have a two-hour prayer meeting, a two-hour prayer meeting, and they would pray systematically for all the continents of the world. In particular, one of the things that they prayed for most ardently were the persecuted believers in various lands. And at that time, the persecuted believers they prayed for the most strongly were those behind the Iron Curtain. They prayed for those persecuted believers, and they prayed ardently, fervently for the fall of communism. And when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, I'm told that uh, Pastor still addressed the prayer meeting. We have prayed for the, I won't do a Scottish accent. We have prayed for the last 40 years for the fall of communism. And God has answered our prayers. Now we must pray about Islam. And they started praying. William still has gone on to glory, but I'm convinced that the example that he set there, brothers, was the right one. Another 40 years of prayer from us in churches like this one, regularly, perseveringly. I'm convinced they could do what all the drones and the bombs and the bullets could never do, and that is lift that dark veil of Islam and open up the closed nations of the 1040 window so that the gospel breaks forth gloriously in those places. I have to tell you, Methodists are not going to kill us. (laughs) If we want a true end to the war on terror, we have to be changing hearts. A godly man, therefore, and here's the application, is a man of prayer. The great African missionary David Livingstone was such a godly man. He died 33 years after first setting foot in Africa. And do you know where his African helpers uh, found him when he was dead? They found him kneeling at the foot of his bed. And what a glorious thing that must have been. He was sitting there kneeling in the praying position and he had died. And imagine the joy of speaking to your Lord through a glass darkly and then suddenly face to face in his very presence. What a beautiful thing that would be. But let me ask you, is that likely to happen to you? Would it require some pretty precise timing on the part of the Lord? No! Quick! (laughs) Got him just in time. I hope not. Strive to be so constant in prayer that it becomes as natural to you as breathing so you don't even have to think about it. You just pray. It kind of comes out of you as easily as oxygen. Well, time is fleeting. You don't have a clock in here. How do you ever know when to stop? <laughs> I won't ask your, the members of your uh, church that. Third thing, a godly man prizes Christ above all things. Now, the godly man, although we call him the godly man, is not perfect. There is only one who is well, uh, without sin, and that is God. Only Christ. He is not perfect. He is not without sin. But he can say honestly with Peter, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he understands instinctively what Spurgeon said when he preached that Christianity is a heart religion. And if you cannot say from the very depths of your being, Christ is all, you have neither part nor lot in the blessing and privileges of the gospel, and your end will be destruction, everlasting banishment from the presence of the Lord. The godly man knows 
that Christ is his all in all, and he would rather part with anything, even his life, rather than lose Christ. For he knows that ultimately, what are all the things in the world? They're just so many sandcastles compared to the excellence of knowing and serving Christ. Now know this, brothers. If you are that kind of godly man who loves Christ above all things, it will often bring you into conflict with those who don't love Christ. And Jesus himself warned that sometimes a godly man's enemies will be those of his own household. What godly man is there in this world who has at some point not had to choose between following Christ and pleasing men? Whether it's the boss who wants you to work on Sunday instead of going to worship, or the friends who tell you you were so much more fun before you became this Jesus freak and are always seeking to drag you back into your old way of life, or even the wife who notices that she has become second in your heart. And that there's this guy named Jesus who's first now. And she does not realize that it's far better to be second in the heart of a godly man for life than just the temporary idol of an ungodly man. Worshipped for a little while, idolatrized, and then set aside. All she knows is that she is angry at being displaced. The godly man, though, knows what Jesus said. He said to him in Matthew 10, 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If we love anything more than Christ, we are not worthy of him. And if he says that of mothers and sons and daughters, how much more does it apply to career or sports or all of these inconsequential things? And the godly man knows, the man who loves Christ knows this. He knows that while men are supremely fickle, I mean, let's face it, they love a person one day and they hate them the next. While that's the way men act, the love of Christ never changes. And that in Christ, he has one who has proven his love by dying for him. And he knows that Jesus didn't die for him because he was such a good guy. He knows that Jesus didn't die for him because that man was a friend of Christ, a a good man. He knows that Jesus died for him when he was still an enemy, still a sinner, and without hope in this world. And so he knows in his mind and in his heart, what has Christ done for me? Christ took my terrible sin burden upon his shoulders, a burden that would have sunk me lower than the grave, to use Bunyan's experience. And Jesus endured the righteous wrath of God that would have fallen upon me in an eternity in hell. And then, after he had paid for that, he took away my filthy rags and he clothed me with his own perfect righteousness so that on the last day, God will look down on me and he will see only the perfect, spotless righteousness of his own son. And he will see, say this thing to me that I long to hear, well done, O good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Not because of what I have done, but because of the one who loved me so much that he was willing to give me everything because of what he did. And for the godly man, Jesus is the true north of his heart compass. It always points to Christ. And sure, occasionally it'll get spun around by sin. Okay, it'll whirl. But 
This is the mark of the godly man. It always returns to Christ. The compass needle always comes back. The ungodly man, sometimes when you swirl him around, he'll point to Christ. But then it always comes back to his sin. The dog always returns to the vomit, the sow to the wallowing in the mud. But the godly man always comes back to Christ. And the godly man knows the truth of what Paul said in his last letter to Timothy, which he wrote from a prison cell. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. He will suffer persecution, but he can do it in Christ. And sometimes, brothers, as godly men, our godliness is going to be tested, not just in the day-to-day application when we should be godly all the time, but it'll be tested in things we could never expect happening. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to make this point, but recently, my own godliness, what I have, has been put to the test in ways I never expected. My neighbor has three ravenous pit bulls, and we got my son, a, uh, my son Graham, a beagle puppy for his birthday. We came home one night and discovered that the beagle puppy had disappeared from the yard. One of the pit bulls had actually pulled it through a hole it had made in the fence and had killed it. And thus began this awful, awful nightmare with my neighbor who feels that his dog was justified in killing mine and and, uh, (laughs) everything has gotten worse and worse and worse. And so for the past few weeks, I've had all of these revenge scenarios going through my head. I have been grappling with hatred and so on. But here, this is where Christ in your life becomes so vital. It's in those moments of testing. Where's your heart compass? That's come back to me again and again. And here also, I, I normally I would never do this with, this, with, the, with the person in the room, but you don't have to be old to be godly. You do not have to be old to be godly, kids. I hope you're hearing me right now still. One of the things that struck me is that three of my children were right there with me with all the revenge scenarios, you know? Yeah, we could lure him in with bacon, and then, Daddy, you could take your shotgun, and boom, you know, that's the end of them so on. I'm like, oh no, this is so wrong. But one of my children, the one who had lost the most, wasn't coming up with those revenge scenarios. And I know, I know his heart was broken. But that was what impressed me. It was Christ in my son. And I said, we need to get him to make a profession of faith. <laughs> but brothers, you don't have to be old. It just requires the work of Christ and the means of grace. Godliness will take you through things that you never thought you could endure, and you can endure them with Christ and grow. Let me give you two final applications. I never meant to include that one. The godly man wants to have godly children. But what is the key to having godly children that so many of us as fathers never find? It is this. In order to have godly children, you must be godly yourself. It's just that simple. You have to live a life of godliness before them. Because know this, men, children don't grow up to become the perfect people they've never seen modeled before them. They just don't. They don't grow up to be who we tell them to be. This is who I want you to be! That's not going to work. With very few exceptions, that old saying, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, is true. They grow up to be who we are. You know this at heart. Why do sons like their father's favorite sports and favorite teams? Is it just an amazing coincidence? No. They're watching you. They want to know what's good. They want to know what's right. They want to know who to root for and who to boo. 
Those are the things they're looking to you for. They're modeling themselves on you. So when you swear, they'll swear. When you blaspheme, they'll blaspheme. If you have a taste for pornography, they'll have a taste for uh, for pornography. If you like violent movies and violent games, they will as well. They will develop your tastes because they learn what is good and desirable and important by our behavior, not by our words. And that's why if a parent drops his child off for Sunday school in the morning and then he goes home and goes back to bed, what does that child ultimately learn? Church is for kids who can't get out of it. But how I long for the day when I too can be like dad and go back to bed and ignore that whole thing. It is our actions that train a child in what is right and what is wrong. We teach them that way. That, that's why the Bible tells us train up a child in the way he should go. Not instruct him. Train him up in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. And this has been what I have found. A godless, amoral family does not produce godly, moral children. Simply by keeping them away from mature videos. Doesn't happen. Believe me, they'll also, eventually, they'll find this stuff as you've hidden it around the house because they know that's their parents' real treasure. The stuff that they hide away. And they'll go searching for it. I'll give you a simple example from my own life. My parents told me again and again not to swear. They even punished me from it, for it. I can remember times, and this is back in the days when, you know, soap didn't come from the squirt, squirt, squirt bottle. You actually had a bar. You remember those days? I can remember having the soap shoved in my mouth and slushed around by my mouth, and it tasted awful. I hope they make better tasting soap these days. But do you know what? I still swore like a trooper as a child. Do you know why? Because my dad did. And I was growing up to be like him. He was my model. Now, we know this. Not every child of godly men turns out godly themselves. Sometimes you have a Samuel who does not walk in the way, or rather a Samuel whose sons don't walk in his ways. And we know that nurture alone never produces a godly man. The regenerating of the work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary. We can't, by our nurture, produce a saved child as much as we might like to. But in all of my years as a pastor, I have found that every single time I've met a godly young man, really, behind him is a godly father. And a father who has obeyed the command of Ephesians 6.4, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And behind every ungodly young man, I found a father who hasn't cared much about that at all. Sometimes they pull their hair out. I worked so hard for this family, and look at what this ratbag son of mine is doing. Ah! You worked so hard for this family. Yes, you do, sir. But you have given him none of the spiritual nurture and instruction that he needed. And you never modeled it for him. And so there he is. We must be godly fathers and set that as our priority, modeling that godliness for our, father, uh, for our children. And let me close with this. Let me deal in closing with the opposite of godliness. What is the opposite of godliness? Somebody will say, ungodliness. No. For the Christian, the opposite of godliness is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. The disconnect between knowing what we should do and doing it. 
They're not together. They're removed. And I know that in an audience this size, small as it is, there's going to be a man there, or even a boy, a young man, who desires to be godly, but he's already under the dominion of some sort of chronic sin, something he just can't seem to stop. Watson wrote this. When is a man under the dominion and power of hypocrisy? There are two signs of its predominance. One, when one serves God for sinister ends. Second, this is the one I want to apply, when there is some sin dear to a man which he cannot part with. These two are as clear signs of a hypocrite as any I know. And then he says this, Christian, if you mourn for your hypocrisy, yet find this sin so potent that you cannot get the mastery of it, go to Christ. Beg of him that he would exercise his kingly office in your soul, that he would subdue this sin and put it under the yoke. Beg of Christ to exercise his spiritual surgery upon you. Desire him to lance your heart, cut out the rotten flesh, and that he would apply the medicine of his blood to heal you of your hypocrisy. Say that prayer of David often. Let my heart be sound in your statutes. Lord, let me be anything rather than a hypocrite. I hope that's your prayer as well. It's been my experience that so many, so many men attempt to deal with their besetting sins and their hypocrisies by, by taking them head on. No, I'm going to stare down the dragon. It doesn't work. Go to Christ. Ask him to set you free. I've experienced this in my own life, and it is a wonderful thing. Go to him. Ask him to set you free from a besetting sin if it is keeping you from being the godly man that you need to be and your family needs. I could say more, but we don't have time. Let's go to the Lord now, who is the source of all godliness. God, our Father, you are the original. We are but poor copies. But we strive, O Lord, to emulate Jesus. O Lord, as one of your servants has said, I may be a worm, but in Christ I desire to be a glowworm. I pray that we all would be, that we would be candles in the darkness, an example of Christ-likeness in a very dark time and that you would make love to Christ, the prize that we will never part with. Let it be he that we seek, he that we quest after. Let it be your word that we go to in the morning. Let it be your face that we seek in prayer constantly. And let it be the case that we might be like David Livingston, one day praying on our knees, and the next being bidden to rise by the glorious presence of our Lord and Savior as we see him face to face. Oh, Lord, may that day come quickly. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.